the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 62 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. But the question is, how are we to face a crisis? What is our responsibility as we go through a, through a crisis? Uh, one of those, those humanly impossible situations. Does God expect anything of us? You can probably guess from Pastor Steve Kreloff's question just now that God does indeed expect something of us when we pray during times of crisis. This is Verse by Verse, and we're glad you've joined us. Pastor Steve is the pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our lesson today continues a series from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a leader who set some great examples for us. One example was the way he prayed and what he did in conjunction with prayer. Nehemiah knew how to be active and patient at the same time. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 2 and see how he modeled for us our responsibility in times of crisis. Here's Pastor Steve. Well, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah, the second chapter, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 8, and uh, we're in for an exciting study. These studies in Nehemiah are, are thrilling, they're, um, they're very practical, they're very helpful in our, own, in our own lives. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? There's nothing but sad, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servants has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces be, uh, beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. When John Wesley was 32 years of age and not yet a Christian, though religious, he faced a very serious problem. Wesley was a bachelor at the time and he belonged to a group called the Holy Club. Now, the Holy Club lived by a set of ideals, one of which was to remain single and not get married. Well, John Wesley met a young woman who he fell in love with, and this 
was his dilemma. Should he uh, be true to his ideals, of which he said if he belonged to this club he would, or should he follow his, his heart's desire? Now, Wesley knew that only, only God could, uh, could solve this problem, and so he and a friend devised a unique way, a unique plan to determine God's will. They decided to draw lots, and what they did is they took three separate pieces of paper and they put a message on, on, each, uh, on each piece of paper. On one page, the message was, marry. The other page was, don't think of it this year. The third one was, think of it no more. And so they took these pages and uh, pieces of paper and they put it in a container, shook it around, and then his friend reached in for Wesley and pulled out the paper that said, think of it no more. John Wesley was brokenhearted, but he saw this as God's answer, so he ended the romance and the relationship. Now, you know what? That's a silly way to deal with a problem. Hey, that's a stupid way to deal with a problem. I'm sure he meant well, but that's really silly. And, and more importantly, it's an unbiblical way to face a crisis. It's a real unbiblical way to, to face a crisis. It's kind of a cop at it. It says that I don't have any responsibility to think. I don't have any responsibility to work my way through this. Uh, I think it's silly and unbiblical. But the question is, how are we to face a crisis? What is our responsibility as we go through a, through a crisis? Uh, one of those, those humanly impossible situations. Does God expect anything of us? Well, yes, he does. And thankfully, our example is not John Wesley, but uh, a great example is Nehemiah, the Old Testament character. Because in Nehemiah chapter 1, we're told that he faced a, a, a severe crisis in his own heart and his own mind. He believed that that God wanted him to leave the Persian city of Susa, about 800, 1,000 miles away from Judah, and go to Jerusalem, and he was the one God was calling to rebuild the temple. But the problem was that he's basically a high-class slave. He's the cupbearer to the king. He doesn't get time off. He doesn't get vacations. He can't just say, I'm leaving, I'll be back in a few weeks. It doesn't work like that. The king needed him in Susa, not in Jerusalem. So in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, we looked at this last week, Nehemiah prayed a wonderful prayer that really serves as a model for us on how to pray when you face a crisis. How, how, do, you, how do you pray? Uh, but this is where many of us make a very, a very terrible mistake. Some of us, when going through a crisis, think that that's all there is to it. You just pray and you do nothing. You, you, you only pray. That's the only thing you're to do. And that's wrong because if that's the case, then what we've done is we've overemphasized God's sovereignty to the neglect of human responsibility. And we tend to neglect what God wants us to do. And so when God answers our prayers, we aren't prepared for it, and we miss some, some special uh, doors of opportunity God has opened. Now, on the other hand, some do just the opposite. Some think that they just have to do human effort, and they don't pray about it. Some Christians just think, well, God's given me a brain, and uh, I can leave him out of it, and he just wants me to, to go into it and, and take things into my own hands. Uh, both of those are extremes. To emphasize God's sovereignty to the neglect of human responsibility is wrong. To emphasize human responsibility to the neglect of God's sovereignty is equally wrong. You see, there's a balance. There are two sides to, to dealing with a crisis. Side number one is the divine side. We looked at that last week. Because God is sovereign, and he's the only one who can really take care of this. He can handle and, and solve any dilemma you have. He can change anyone's heart. He can give you all the money that you need uh, to take care of things. God is in control. 
So we turn to him in prayer. But the flip side of, of how to deal with the crisis is in chapter 2. And that is what we're going to study this morning. That's the human side of dealing with the crisis. What do we do as we seek the Lord? What is our responsibility? In other words, what does God expect us to be doing as we pray uh, for him to work things out? And that's what Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 is about. We're given a tremendous balance here of divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together. And you have to have both. You just have to have both or else you're going to be very unbalanced and unbiblical. For example, let let me just give you a few examples of of what I mean, a few illustrations. It would be wrong to be praying for souls to be saved and yet never witness. It would be wrong to be praying God save people, but yet you you don't do anything to evangelize. You're just praying. That's wrong. Also, it would be wrong to to say, uh, to pray, God, make me a better husband, make me a better wife, and yet you don't look into the Bible or do any reading in Christian books to find out how you can become a better husband or a better wife. See, that's what we're talking about. Um, It would be wrong also to say, God, give me insight into your word. Help me to meditate on the word, help me to memorize scripture, and then you don't come up with any plan to do it. That's what we're talking about. And, and um, something that, that I remember this week, which I think really illustrates this, D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist and the founder of Moody Bible Institute, was on a, a ship one, one time that was sinking. And someone said to him, Mr. Moody, let's go downstairs and have a prayer meeting. And he said, why don't we pray while we empty the ship of water? Let's do that. You see, there's, there's divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and we... Uh, we have to take both into account. So, likewise, it would be wrong to pray for God to solve our crisis without doing our part. And the question that, that we have to, uh, to ask this morning is, what is our part? Well, Nehemiah models for us our part in dealing with the crisis. We're given four responsibilities in these eight verses that I read to you. Four responsibilities that we have when we're going through a difficult time. Okay, so get your pens, pencils out and and take these down because uh, if you're not facing a difficult situation now, you will. You will and you'll uh, you want to know what to do. First responsibility that we have in a crisis is to be patient, to just be patient and wait on the Lord. Nehemiah chapter two begins this way. It came about in the month of Nisan. Now I touched on this last week, but let me review it again and and come at it from another angle. Chapter one tells us that Nehemiah began to pray for God to intervene in the month of Kislev. That would be the month of November, December. Now in chapter two, we read that it's four to five months later in the month of Nisan. That would be about March, April. So for four or five months, Nehemiah has been praying and you know what? Nothing has happened. Nothing's happened in that, in that whole time period, but he's been praying night and day. And the thing that impresses me about Nehemiah is he's so patient. He's been praying for four to five months, and uh, he's not rushing out, off to do something, take matters into his own hands. He's not running away from, uh, from the king. He's not trying to, to do things in his own wisdom. Even though his heart is broken and he wants things to happen now, uh, he's not being impatient. I think if there's anything that American Christians need to know is to be patient. Because we are not a patient people. We want things now. 
We uh, are people who are moving, who are busy, who are impatient. We're, we live in a work-oriented society. We move in the fast lane of life. We don't know what it is to wait upon the Lord. We don't really know what it is to be patient. We just take matters and we attack things. And we want to get it done yesterday. In fact, how many of us have a difficult time just relaxing? Just relaxing. Uh, I remember a few months ago... I don't know how this day happened, but I seem to have gotten all of my work done. I think it was a Monday or a Saturday. I was at home, and um, I was just relaxing, and I kept thinking, there must be something I have to do. I just, there, there has to be, I can't just relax without having something on my mind. And I thought, how, how terrible to, to feel like I just can't relax. I think most of us can experience, have experienced that because we're too, too busy. We're just moving Always think of doing something. If God doesn't answer my prayer today, we're going to take things into our own hands and deal with this tomorrow. But the Bible exhorts us to do things differently. How about Psalm 46, verse 10, where David said, Be still and know that I am God. There is a time to work and there is a time to be still and know that he is God. You know what this, in the original Hebrew, it really is not be still, it's let go, relax. Let go, relax. There is a time and a place when you're dealing with a crisis to just let go and relax and give it to the Lord and be patient. Exodus 14, 13 is the children of Israel are waiting as they've crossed the Red Sea and, the, and, and Pharaoh and his chariots are following them. They get nervous, they get worried and Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. There is a time and a place as you're seeking God to just stand still and watch God work. Now, that's not all there is, but there is a great truth to just being patient, being patient. You see, part of trusting the Lord is to wait on him for the right timing, the right timing. It's believing that he will respond to your requests at the perfect time. He's not lost control. And for Nehemiah, the perfect time came one day in the month of Nisan, because on that day, and he didn't have a clue it was going to be this day. He didn't know Nehemiah chapter two at that point. On that day, while Nehemiah was going about his normal routines, the king noticed something different about him. We read in verses 1 and 2, it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's, that's the king's name, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And he said, then I was very much afraid. For the first time, Nehemiah's countenance was sad. First time in these months it was said. He's carrying a burden of grief over Jerusalem uh, being torn down, the walls not built up, the gates not up. And King Artaxerxes realized, as he saw his countenance was sad, that this was not because he wasn't feeling good. He realized that it had nothing to do with, with physical sickness. And at the end of verse 2, there's a very fascinating statement. It says, then I was very much afraid. Then I was very much afraid. You might say, well, why would he be afraid? You might think, look, if I was having a rough day and my boss noticed that I wasn't feeling very good this day, I'd be thrilled. I'd be honored that, that he was so sensitive to, and so alert that he would notice me. Yeah, but your boss is not a Persian king. When a Persian king said that, it was a problem because it was against Persian law to, uh, to show sadness in the king's presence. Everybody had to be happy because if you weren't happy, it meant that you weren't pleased with the king. So they had a law that you couldn't be sad in his presence. Nobody was allowed to rain on the king's parade. 
And that's what was going on here. If you did, you were insulting the king, that he wasn't good enough for you, that there was something wrong. And you could be severely punished, especially if he suspected uh, treason, that you were plotting an assassination. And, and that's why Nehemiah quickly responds in verse 3. He, he said, uh, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. In other words, I'm loyal to you. I'm not plotting anything. I'm not sad because I'm, I'm concerned whether this plot goes off okay. He said, let the king live forever. My loyalty to you is without question, King Artaxerxes is what he's saying. I'm sad over something else. Now, before we, we go further and see what that something else is and how he, he relates it to the king, uh, we, we need to see how this responsibility to be patient applies to us. You may be facing a serious dilemma these days that's been a problem for you for some time. And you've been praying about it. It's not new, it's old, you've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed, and you're thinking about taking matters into your own hands. Maybe a failed marriage, maybe a financial crisis, maybe a, a physical problem, maybe uh, a difficult business situation, and you, your attitude could be, I've given God enough time, now I'm going to do something, and you're going to violate the word of God. Listen, it is always too soon to quit. It is always too soon to quit waiting upon the Lord. And maybe, and I don't know this for a fact, but maybe Nehemiah was getting uh, uh, a little antsy here. Maybe he was getting discouraged. Maybe that's why he was sad this day. Maybe he was getting ready to take matters into his own hand. But we all have kind of a breaking point, even though we need to be patient. It's always too soon to quit. So we want to be patient. We want to wait upon the Lord. And listen why. Because you don't know the mind of the Lord. You don't know how he's working behind the scenes to bring about his will. You don't know his eternal plan. Tomorrow may be the day that God begins to move, and you can see it. It may be when you wake up, it's just another day, and you haven't got a clue as to this is the day, but this is the day God has marked, and he's ready to begin to work out your problem, and you've got to be ready. And the reason I say this is because Nehemiah didn't know when he woke up that morning that God was delaying his answer for that particular day. Not the next day, not the day before, but that particular day. We know it, though. We know that that particular day was significant in biblical history. And you know how we know it? Well, you'll know it if you turn to Daniel chapter 9. And I want, I want to just bring this out. This is so, so significant. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's been praying about Israel going back to the land. Daniel takes place before Nehemiah. Uh, Daniel's part of the 70-year captivity. And uh, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, and he realizes that the 70 years are almost up. The people are going to go back to, to, uh, from Babylon to Israel. And he's praying about that. And the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, no, Nehemiah, 70 years are going to go back, but there's more years until ultimate restoration. I want you to read, uh, I want to read to you Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And I'm going to explain this and, and we're going to tie it in how this is important. 70 weeks, this is what the angel sa is saying to Daniel. Daniel 9, verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, we read 70 weeks, and I don't have the time to go into all of this. You can get the tape on, on Daniel, or you can read a good book about it, or see me after, but 
70 weeks is not 70 weeks of seven days. It's 70 periods of seven years. He's talking about 490 years. 490 years. It will take 490 years for God to to bring all of this about that he says in verse 24, which is basically to chastise Israel, bring them to Messiah, and and for, for the Messiah to return and establish his kingdom. So God has cut out of history a period of 490 years for Israel and Jerusalem. That's why it says for Daniel, it's for, it's for your people and your holy city. 490 years out of history in order to bring Israel to himself and establish his kingdom. Now, when did this time period begin? Because if you could figure out when it began, then you could figure out when to expect the Messiah, his first coming. Because verse 25 says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's just another way of saying 69 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. 490 years begin with a decree to restore Jerusalem. And you know what? That decree was given by King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2, that very day that we're reading about. Now, why is this significant? Because from that day until the Messiah would come, Daniel is being told, 69 weeks or 483 years would take place. Now, I want to uh, read to you, and we're taking time on this because it's establishing a very important point. I only hope that you get the point after I establish it. But uh, in, in a uh, commentary I have called The Most High God, when during the lifetime of Jesus the Messiah did the 483 years end? When computing the data provided by Gabriel, one must keep in mind that in ancient times, a year was reckoned to consist of 360 days. The ancient peoples of India, Persia, Babylon, uh, Egypt, Greece, uh, Italy, Central America, and China had a calendar system with the 360-day year. The Bible followed that ancient system, and he gives verses for that. Five months contained 150 days and so forth. 42 months or three uh, and one-half years contained 1,260 days. Thus, the 483 years between Artaxerxes' decree and the designated time in Messiah's life would amount to 173,880 days. That would be 483 years times 360 days. According to Gabriel, starting with Artaxerxes' decree in March 445 BC, the addition of 173,880 days would bring one to the exact time when something significant would happen in Messiah's life on earth. Research led Sir Robert Anderson to conclude that Artaxerxes issued his decree to Nehemiah on March 14th, 445 BC. Beginning with that date, the 173,880 days end on April 6th. 32 AD. Thus, the 483 years ended on April 6, 32 AD. What significant thing happened to Jesus the Messiah on April 6, 32 AD? When referring to the end of the first 483 years, Gabriel said, until Messiah the Prince. Whatever happened to Jesus on April 6, 32 AD, it must have been related significantly to his being the Prince, the King of Israel. Sir Robert Anderson concluded that April 6, 32 AD was the day on which Jesus officially presented himself as Messiah to Israel through his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 had declared that Israel would identify its king in the following manner. He would come to Jerusalem mounted on the foal of a donkey. Some of the crowd on that Palm Sunday recognized the significance of Jesus' actions on that day, for they called him king. 
As Jesus approached Jerusalem on that day, he wept over the city and said, if you had known, watch this, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. He warned Jerusalem that it would suffer great disaster because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus' language indicated that that particular day had been marked out by God as the time of Jerusalem's visitation by her Messiah Prince, the day which could have brought lasting peace to that city if its people had accepted Jesus for who he was. It also indicated that the Jewish people should have recognized that that particular day, April 6, 32 AD, was the day on which Messiah would visit Jerusalem as Prince. Why should they have recognized this? Because several centuries Earlier in Daniel 9.25, God had, reve had revealed the exact time when Messiah would present himself as prince to Israel. Now, do you understand why Nehemiah was praying four or five months and God didn't answer until that precise day? Because he was fitting everything into his prophetic calendar. That is profound. That is, that is a tremendous truth. Why did God wait to answer? Because that was the day he had purposed to answer. We'll learn more from the life of Nehemiah on the next Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These radio Bible classes of the air are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. We are a faith ministry supported by the prayers and gifts of our listeners. To learn more about us or to listen again to today's class, visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. Call us at 727-239-0306 if you'd like to order a cassette or CD with the entire message that we began today. The number again is 727-239-0306. I hope you can join us for the next... Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.